Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Basil Watson, a Jamaican sculptor now based in the USA, and over a 45-year career, he has achieved international recognition as one of the world's leading sculptors. He was awarded the highest order of distinction, Commander Class, by the Government of Jamaica, and his distinction through service continues today. Basil's outstanding work serves the development of global harmony. He speaks to equality, justice and peace, always remaining humble, dedicated to his artistic service. He's also the son of Barrington Watson, one of Jamaica's most eminent artists who became an internationally renowned painter. He was a pioneer leading cultural change in the recognition of and possibility for black artists. And art runs throughout Basil's family, including his brother, sister and son, who are all artists. This is a family legacy sharing an artistic language that speaks universally to humanity. Basil is responsible for iconic statement sculptures that reach out emotionally, capturing the spirit and personality of his subjects. Just some of his well-known work includes Jamaican sprinter, the eight-time Olympic gold medalist Usain Bolt, civil rights leader and one of the greatest speakers of all time, Martin Luther King, and the National Windrush Monument unveiled by Prince William in Britain. Basil understands the important role of the arts in leadership and in his own words, global harmony is critical for the survival of humanity and for the creation of a world in which all mankind can live productive and creative lives. Hello, Basil, and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, Paula. It's a pleasure being here. I look forward to the conversation. Thank you so much. Um, To have your time really is an honour. Thank you again. So, Basil, you've also commented that you're inspired by the heroic in mankind. And I was interested in what heroic means to you. Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think it means uh, personal striving for the best that we possibly can achieve within ourselves. And it doesn't necessarily mean heroic on a public on a public stage or platform. You can be heroic within your individual life by making the right choices, the hard choices, and sticking to your integrity and living a life of of integrity. So um, I think that in itself is heroism. And um, once we we live to that standard, um, 
doesn't need to be recognized. But uh, in the individual, you will see within somebody that struggle, that fight. And um, it is inspiring whether public figures or um, ordinary people or what we would consider to be ordinary people. Yeah, exactly. So you're as interested in the integrity, ordinary, everyday people show in terms of their own struggle and how they respond. Yes. um, uh, It's not often recognised, but, um, you know, within the individual, you you can see where um, that effort to, to, to overcome sometimes mundane obstacles, but um, each person's struggle is, is their own and, and they have to live it and they have to make the decision. So, um, you know, it, it can be, and I think most importantly, a very personal and private uh, quality. Mm-hmm. And I imagine your father is one of your heroes, if not the hero for you. Yes, he is. Um, in the 30s, he was born 30s. So we we're talking about in the 50s, he's making a decision to study art. That in itself is quite uh, a decision. Um, he encountered opposition from his father who wanted him to be a lawyer and take on a more established uh, career path. But he stuck to his guns. He was determined what he wanted to do. He was relentless in his pursuit of uh, excellence and knowledge in art. And um, he didn't have the luxury that I have of seeing him do it. Um, you know, he was he was breaking the wind. He was at the head of the pack. Yeah, and it it must have been so unusual because I understand that in fact he was the first black man to enrol at the Royal College of Art in London. Um, is that right? That he was actually literally breaking down those barriers single handedly. Yes, as far as I I've heard from him and from other sources, that he was um, the first black man to enter the Royal College of Art. Um, so he was uh, facing those barriers. I, I hear the stories of my parents in England in the 50s, and uh, they were up against all that was happening, and yet he, he stuck to his guns. Yeah, I mean, it is it is an astonishing story because, of course, in that period and, and in the 50s, there would have been huge challenges, not only economically as an artist, but problems around deep discrimination. And he managed to maintain his own artistic and moral integrity, uh, as do you. What were his wisdoms, do you think, that helped him persevere and that he's passed on to you? Uh, well, one of his mantras is, um, if I'm quoting it correctly, uh, nothing but the best is good enough. Uh, um, he always emphasized um, 
uh, focus on the big picture. And he saw himself in terms of the big picture, in terms of not just an artist in a corner, but how he related to artists throughout time, um, throughout the world. And he had a very global view of uh, his, his art and himself and his standards. So these are things that um, really stuck with me. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, would that would that move to Britain? Um, would that have been in response to the call uh, to what we now refer to as the Windrush era, uh, when Commonwealth citizens were invited to Britain to help rebuild post-war Britain, uh, yet? weren't weren't met with the fairest or best conditions despite that invitation but is that what uh opened up if you like that opportunity to come and study in britain well it seems that things coincided i know my mother uh she went there with the intention of pursuing nursing which was one of the calls that um uh was at the time to come to Britain to to do nursing. In terms of his ambitions, uh, maybe the opportunities opened and gave him the opportunity to pursue his art. Um, I don't know if it was in response to the Windrush call or the call at the time that uh, we now call the Windrush period. But um, things coincided and the the thing is that I never got the chance to discuss the actual Windrush experience with my parents. Um, they died both past before it became uh, a global political issue. And um, it's in hindsight that I'm looking and trying to connect the dots and realizing that all of this was happening at the same time. So um, there definitely is some over a lot of overlap, I would say. Yeah, and you certainly seem to share deep courage and perseverance with your father in terms of the inroads and choices he made, but also the choices you've made. Would you say courage and looking forward and somehow remaining positive and also thinking about making positive change is something you were brought up to think about. It was, it was the only way, um, you know, if he, the way he spoke about art and the way he lived his art, you felt, uh, you, you, you really saw no other way uh, but to do it with integrity and stick to your truth. And um, this is how he lived it. And it was so inspiring. It, but it seemed like the natural and only way to, to, to do things. And it has passed on to basically everything that I do. Um, there is only one way. You just do it. and. Um, do it the right way. 
he would always say the things you don't like to do, do them well so that you don't have to do it twice. And um, the things you like to do, do them well because you enjoy doing it. Uh, so the, the only way to, to, to live your life was to live it to your truth. And um, everything falls in place uh, seamlessly. Well, uh, with struggle, but, you know. Uh, so for art, it was very much a way of life. I don't want to say a religion, but it was a way of life for him. And um, we, his three children, I think were all inspired to, to live that life. It was amazing to sit and hear him talk about art, uh, where he saw himself in the historical and global picture, where he wanted to place Jamaica, his approach to his craft. Um, it led us to seek you know, the, the highest possible value that we could achieve. Yeah, absolutely, because I know that um, he was able to travel in Europe and North America, Africa. He, he was well-travelled, and I imagine that in return shared a huge perspective with, with you and with your siblings. And uh, I, I read uh, you saying that it was extremely empowering and that you, it gave you the feeling that you could be a first-world citizen. Well, he saw Jamaica taking its place. You know, he, he right after his studies, I would, well, as a mature man uh, tackling his craft, he saw Jamaica gain independence from Britain, become an independent country. And there was a, a positiveness about the time, about what Jamaica could be and how Jamaica could take its place in the world as a world citizen. And he wanted, he saw Jamaica, and, and Jamaica to a great extent has lived up to a lot of those possibilities um, where people came to Jamaica for the culture and for the energy. And um, he was he was a part of that. And um, that's one of the reasons why he was determined to go back to Jamaica to live and, uh, you know, develop his career in Jamaica. Uh, he wanted people to uh, see his work as international work, but in and from Jamaica. So, um you know, a lot of his energy, a lot of his aspiration was about making, uh, putting Jamaica on the map. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, he became the first principal and director of studies at the Jamaica School of Art. So I imagine that had a huge impact on you. Yes, it did. Uh, I I felt that I could get a first-class education in art in Jamaica, uh, especially on the foundations that he built. And so I, I had no qualms about doing my further studies 
at the Jamaica School of Art, now the Enemali College of the Visual and Performing Arts. But I felt that I could get a, a first world education right there. And it was on very much on the foundation that he laid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's such a, I mean, he was obviously such a powerful role model for you. And of course, Later on, once you were also uh, very well established as a as an artist uh, sculptor in your own right, you also decided to venture further afield, and you decided to go to the USA, where where you're now based, of course. Again, would that have been drawing on example? Because I imagine that would have presented its own challenges for you too. That that must have demanded some degree of courage and resilience? Yes. Uh, the, the world is still young. You know, the modern era is still in its infancy. Jamaica very much is in its infancy. And uh, you know, as we move forward, we learn uh, a lot of the naivety falls away. Um, and I felt it necessary. His, his objective was to go back to Jamaica and plant what he had learned in Jamaica and grow and develop that. Um, when I reached a certain level in my career, I felt that I needed to then go out of Jamaica and take with me what a lot of what I had gained in Jamaica and plant that uh, on a more global stage. And... Um, because I don't think I was, I don't think the, the pot was large enough to to allow me to grow to where I wanted to be, and so I felt it necessary to um, to leave Jamaica and go overseas. America had become much cl a much closer ally once we had um, gained independence from Britain, or a more accessible place. And so, you know, uh, coming to the United States was, was the choice that I made. Yeah, and and did you consciously feel that um, you were having to be courageous in some way, or was it really led by your values in leaning forward and and remaining positive uh, and fighting, fighting for your moral and your own artistic integrity? Um, in your in your life and work, uh, yes. Um, when you're in this in the middle of the fight, you don't think of courage. You just think of uh, doing what you need to do. And um, you know, well, in my art and in my life, uh, I, I remember the tale of a Namibian freedom fighter, a friend of mine who was a freedom fighter from Namibia and he was explaining that when you're in the heat of battle you just do you don't think if you stop to think then you've lost it you know um, so in the heat of battle I was making decisions not fully understanding the impact of the decisions I was making but it just seemed right and seemed became the thing to do. And so uh, at one point I decided, okay, 
to go. I need to go abroad. Uh, I need a bigger platform, and, and and made a decision. And coming here, in hindsight, it was a brave move because I the struggles were, were were great. I came here with very little connections and no route, so to speak. So it has. I've been here twenty years, and it has. Um, taken some time for for me to establish myself but I I recognize that it's on the foundation I gained in Jamaica as a Jamaican uh, as a Watson as the son of Barrington Watson and the influences and the the lessons he taught me uh, these were the things that had kept me grounded and allowed me to make the right decision sometimes you don't know why you're making the decision, but it, it it seems right and it turns out to be right because these things were instilled and ingrained in me from from birth, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, you, you decided that you would pack your suitcases. And, of course, uh, suitcases are particularly iconic in themselves. And I'm thinking now of the... National uh, Memorial, the the Windrush National Memorial you've created here in Britain at Waterloo Station, and the family that stand upon seven suitcases. And I wondered if you could share with the listeners what the significance of the suitcases are and and why you made that particular choice. Yes, I I was trying to find something that was iconic for the experience of my parents who were part and parcel of the Windrush generation. And um, they, I remember my mother having a similar suitcase under her bed. I don't remember what is in it uh, or was in it. I don't know where the suitcase is now. Um, but also the whole concept of the suitcase became iconic in Jamaican folklore when, uh, with a radio program, uh, I think it's Dulcimina comes to town and she came with one of those old suitcases from way back uh, in the colonial era. So you imagine it's from England and Within her suitcase, in every episode, she would go into her suitcase and pull out the solution for the problem of the day. And so when thinking of how to depict the Windrush generation and and the movement of of these people, after some time, the concept or the the image of the suitcase became um, central to what I wanted to express. And so, uh, in the in the monument, the the concept is that the suitcases represent the platform of on which the platform on which they they establish themselves, they launch themselves. It it represents the culture that they bring with them, the values that they bring with them. Um, it represents the family's belongings, not just physical belongings, but the spiritual belongings as well. And so it became very central. 
and essential to the the concept and the design of, of the sculpture. Um, and then coupled with the figures, um, uh, it became, well, the suitcase represented the family. So the family needed to be connected to the suitcase. And uh, suitcases elevating the family is, is, is the whole concept. And as well as elevating, they, it is also creating the groundation, the foundation for um, for for the family. Yeah, it's really symbolic. It's it's um, effectively standing on their their own world in a new world at, at the start of a of a whole new era. And there's a lovely. There's a lovely quality in the way uh, the mother, father and daughter are connected. It, it almost feels quite dance-like to me. There's a really lovely, almost ballet-like posture, um, a sense of movement and fluidity in, in how they're holding hands and, and stand in a circle. Um was it really um, about trying to create that sense of fluidity in their union too as, as part of their strength and the dignity and courage that they arrived with? It is the, that dance-like quality that you, you talk about is part of the Jamaican culture, uh, part of the Jamaican essence. Uh, people don't just walk or don't just stand. There is a rhythm, there is a movement, there is an energy, there is a message in terms of how they walk. Um, you used to call it, you would uh, bop. Uh, so you walk with a certain kind of dance-like rhythm. And um, it's in the music, it's in the dress, the posture, um, it was something that my father uh, recognized, emphasized. Um, our uh, lady wouldn't just stand straight in perfect posture. There would be a contraposter uh, rhythm to how she stands and throws her hip and um, throws her buttocks, uh, lifts her chest. So all of this is part and parcel of me. I, I, I lived it and not only lived it on the streets of Jamaica, it was emphasized, it was beautified, it was uh, well, heroized, whatever you want to call it, but um, in my father's paintings and drawings. So it's something that I, I am very aware of. And so it was it was natural that they would have that sort of rhythm where you know um life is expressed through every sinew of their body and that energy and rhythm i think also it's it's part of what makes jamaican culture music and dance and so on so vibrant and so appreciated worldwide uh, and coming out of Jamaica, uh, I see the contrast and, and see where that Jamaican influence is, is really key. Um, that energy, that feeling of pride. And um, 
you know, I, I spoke about my father's desire to to uh, put Jamaica on the map, so to speak. It's part and parcel of the Jamaican ethos that um, that pride, that feeling of we run things, uh, and this is, I think, part of what came to to England in the uh, in the fifties and sixties, and what is called the Windrush Generation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and the family, uh, y- you really can feel that 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 dignity and that lovely sense of of movement, that dance like quality. And as you say, that it, it really represents such unique culture uh, and and values uh, from Jamaica, or or that the the Windrush generation brought into Britain. And once the statue was unveiled, I read that what you hoped for was for it to really stir emotions and that you wanted people to become curious and learn about that experience and what it meant. Do you feel that that is what you've been able to achieve? Are you getting that kind of response and feedback? I definitely am. Uh, I, although I'm living in the United States, um, I have been back to England a couple of times and always visiting the monument. And even when it was unveiled, and online people people talk to me. But uh, there is always, whenever I interact with it, there's always some story about how the monument has stirred emotions and inspired people to look deeper within themselves. I I met uh, a young lady who was actually doing a, a survey and the young lady was Asian and she was saying, she was born, she's second generation, well, first generation English. Her parents were from some part of Asia and she was born in England. And um, the, the the monument inspired her to start to look deeper into her roots, where her parents came from, her culture. And um, she started asking questions before she was not interested, uh, not inspired to to look deeper into her roots, and um, and so. It does this for somebody who is not Windward Generation, but lived similar experiences. And um, and then people from the Windrush um, are saying the same thing. It is encouraging them to look deeper. I see families visiting it and parents explaining this is the experience of grandma and grandpa and so on, and talking to young children. So um, it has it has surpassed expectations. And um, I am learning more and more how deeply the, the rivers of the Windrush generation run um, through uh, the UK. And um, and the world, because I'm getting responses from people who don't necessarily live in the UK, 
but are in some way connected to the Windrush generation. So it, it has definitely surpassed um, my expectations and so on. And in doing it, it was very much a personal journey. Uh, I was learning about my own experiences, uh, things that my parents spoke about that I in no way connected um, with events. You know, slowly I, I would be thinking, oh, okay, I, I remember that, or this is where that is coming from, and so forth. So on a personal level, on a social or global level, I am I am very uh, pleased with the reception that it has received. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a an important landmark uh, in history, and particularly in Britain, because of course, unfortunately, in that you know there is also that context of of the Windrush scandal, astonishingly, and in some ways. Um, Perhaps it felt uh, conflicting that the Prince of Wales unveiled the statue. And of course, that taps into colonial history and, of course, you know, issues around oppression, slavery, theft. Um, there is, there's so many complex layers in that history. And of course, uh, currently, in a contemporary sense, the scandal has emerged that hostile legislation was introduced by successive governments in Britain that effectively led to unlawful deportations of people that had been legitimately invited to help rebuild Britain and were here as legitimate Commonwealth citizens. I can't imagine, Basil, how how you reconcile so many complex layers when you're approaching that work. Well, one of the things, one of the decisions I, I made in life is um, I look towards the light. If I dwell on the shadows or on the darkness, then... Um, I, I get lost. And so uh, the aspects of of racial interaction, slavery, uh, colonialism, um, exploitation, these are all things that uh, we, we face and we fight. And, um, you know, the Caribbean, for instance, is the result of slavery. Um, the indigenous people have almost totally been annihilated. And, um, you know, we call ourselves Jamaicans, but we are actually African slave. Slavery and exploitation is all part of it. And it is, it is sad that uh, it has, we have gone through and we, are, and we continue to go through all of this but we need to figure out a way how to move forward. And we need to look back on that resilience, that strength, that beauty that we exist, that we possess and, um, uh, and celebrate that. Uh, yes, we can mourn the passing, 
And it's like the loss of a parent. We, we mourn the passing. But in the long run, uh, when we think back on our parents, we think back and smile at the good things, at the positiveness. Um, and, and I think this is how uh, this is how I approach my art. Um, while we can speak about a lot of the tragedy and a lot of things, um, the recognition that the Windrush generation is receiving now might not have been if these harsh laws and um, you know unjust laws and so on were not there was not this attempt to implement these things and so it has brought tragedy and in in every you know you you as i say you have to break the break the shell to make an omelet break the egg so there are people who who suffered but we need to um in order to move forward recognize them recognize the suffering and then also recognize out of the suffering the the, the courage and the, the dignity that has that has come out of it and so you know uh what i want as the lasting uh concept of the winners generation is that uh positive energy that, that has been that has come and we need to recognize it and celebrate it. So that is where uh, the monument was going for me. I, um, we could have, I could have thought about emphasizing the tragedies of it, but um, it's all inherent in the the whole mix of things and and, and the story. It will be it the the negatives will be told. But the emphasis will be on uh, the great contribution that um, has been made. Um, so this is where I want to pitch the monument. Yeah, and and as you say, you 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 talk about the development of global harmony, and ultimately that's what's most critical. And from what you were just saying, um, it resonates. It reminds me of the amazing contributions Nelson Mandela made and of course truth and reconciliation was such an enormous part of his work and also courageous isn't it that takes courage doesn't it yes um it, it takes courage for him to be to survive being imprisoned and not just survive but to survive with such a brilliant spirit um it shows the greatness that we possess and um you know it it is uh it is important that just like how he kept his his spirit positive that we all do the same uh because we can dwell on the, if we dwell on the negative then we end up becoming bitter we be, end up becoming remaining uh, bruised and battered. And if we take the positive, then we can flourish. You know? um, so uh, there, there is a lot of, I don't think we fully appreciate how strong we are until 
we go through the fire. And the fire is part of the uh, is part of the, the sculptural process, um, and it is also part of the, the spiritual process of of communities and societies. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking again about the Windrush Monument, what's incredible to me is apparently you only had seven months to create and deliver the completed monument. Uh, is that is that correct? And, and how on earth did you manage that level of pressure? Yes, it is correct. And um, I'm not sure, even looking back, how I managed the pressure. Uh, I, I thought very often of my friend from Namibia who said, just do. So you're running across the field and bullets are flying. Just keep running. Um, you know, don't look ahead. Don't look behind. Just next step. Uh, it it it, um, <clears throat> it, um, it it surprised me, but at the same time didn't surprise me. In the beginning, I said no. This this can't be done. The foundry agreed, and then I made a decision. I said, okay, let's do it. And uh, I had to pull on my vast experience. Um, a lot of my art is like practice and training for these moments where you don't second guess, um, you just do. Uh, you don't analyze, you just... It's all in one process. The analysis, the doing, the um, sculpting is... So I was just doing, 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 and I'm not hesitating to look back and second guess and try to analyze. And it, it, it worked. Um, and it's testimony to the education, the experience, the things I learned at school from my father, from my practice. Um, all culminated into performance. And, um, you know, it was like 9.58 um, on the track. It was the quickest time ever. And um, so that is how I approached it. That is, and the results are what you see. Uh, I don't, I didn't have an idea. I don't stop to think, oh, I could have done this or I could have made that better. It is what it is. And, um, you know, I am I am pleased with it. It's, it's an astonishing achievement and, and thank you for creating it. It's such a privilege to have that important, iconic landmark here in, in Britain. Uh, it's an astonishing achievement. And particularly when I compare it to the fact that you spent two years working on the Martin Luther King statue, Hope Moving Forward. Can you tell us about that process? Because perhaps in other ways, that was equally overwhelming, uh, you know, for such a long, in-depth process and perhaps the responsibility you must feel on your shoulders when you're when you're working on something so important and 
representing somebody who is so legendary? Uh, the Martin Luther King was another chapter that probably prepared me to uh, work on the the Winrush Monument in terms of the time, in terms of the responsibility, in terms of the importance of the uh, of the project. Um, approaching Martin Luther King, that had been done. Martin Luther King is probably one of the most sculpted, represented persons in history. Um, there are sculptures of him in so many different countries, not just America alone. So I was somewhat uh, competing, but not competing against all that had been done. So I approached it with the kind of mindset that this is where, this is what I am dealing with. And then on top of it, uh, COVID came. And the world was in shock. Uh, the world was caught up in fear. Um, we didn't know who would survive. I didn't know if I would survive to the to complete it. Uh, you don't know um, if you are going to be infected from you know whatever source. You have no idea. So you know it 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 came at that time. Um, so emotionally, I was very distracted. Um, it became my studio became uh, a kind of place of solace. It, you know, I'm isolated in my studio, um, but you never know, you know, if. You know, if or when you'll be able to come back to the studio the following day, we get COVID. So, you know, all these things um, played, but it, it provided that that place of calm and contemplation where I could try and divorce myself from, from a lot of this and just focus on the work. So it had that kind of up and down experience. Um, so it, it took longer than I expected. Um, and, but it allowed me time to reflect a little more on, on the doing of the sculpture, the sculpting. And um, I think it prepared me for the Windrush uh, monument. So when I faced that, um, a lot of the problem solutions were worked out um, in my studio two years before. Um, and putting it up, what it represents for the city, um, the Martin Luther King itself, uh, you know, he is one of my ultimate heroes. The irony is that uh, my father had painted him, uh, done a painting of him for Spelman College. This would have been in the late 60s, early, uh, shortly after he was assassinated. So, you know, it has come, it came full circle. Um, you know, I was the second person in the family to be commissioned to do something representing him and so on. So um, it prepared me to operate at that level. Uh, as each sculpture before that, Usain Bolt, Louise Bennett, um, 
the sculpture before before that prepared me for the next one. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that you're that, that when you contextualize the Martin Luther King work in terms of COVID and the overwhelming tragedy that was happening globally, you had this really unusual experience of two ravens and a white dove, I understand, coming to your studio. I wondered if you'd like to share that story and how how you've reflected on it, because, of course, the dove is so symbolic of peace and birds are so symbolic of freedom. And, of course, the statue Martin Luther King holds a bird in his hand I, I didn't know how far that story about the ravens and the dog had gone, but yeah, it's very true. Every word of it is true. Um, I have, well, I have been in that studio you now eight years, nine years, and studios before that, and I have never had birds fly into my studio. So the ravens flew in, uh, flew around. They messed on some drawings. Luckily, they weren't really great drawings. Um, I spent about five minutes, five to ten minutes, flying around, trying to get through the skylight. They saw the skylight and saw the light and was trying to get through. And I was worried that they would batter themselves against this this, uh, ceiling. Then they eventually found a way out and flew away. Haven't been back since. This is when I was doing the Martin Luther King. Uh, a few weeks later, I was actually sculpting the bird. Well, around the time I was sculpting the bird, I was in the back of my studio and a dove came in the grass and hopped around, looked around. And um, it crossed my mind that you know this dove appears in the vicinity and, um, you know, I am putting the dove in the sculpture and so on. But even more than that, a uh, couple of days later, the same dove came back and came by the door. So I put, he was walking around, I put a, a board across the doorway to kind of uh, restrict him from coming in. He jumped up on the board and came, jumped into the studio. I was literally sculpting the dove in the Martin Luther King. He walked around, he walked to the front, he walked and spent quite a few minutes in the studio looking around and then just jumped back on the board and flew away, has not been back since. Um, I, I cannot explain it, you know, it, to me it's a, it's uh, uh, an interesting uh, story, um, and people put whatever meaning they want to it. But um, the dove in the Martin Luther King, I thought everything kind of tied in because uh, a couple of years earlier, um, I had a tragedy in my community where my son's friends um, had died in a car accident. And they, I remember them releasing these doves, symbolic of releasing the spirits of these two young boys. And so the dove was, you know, is 
in the society, symbolic of um, releasing the spirits of those who have passed and so on. And then all of this was happening during COVID when people were dying and the tragedy and the um, horror of it all. Um, so that dove that came into my studio, the dove in the sculpture, um, you know, all of it represents something special. I don't know what, but um, it, to me, reinforces, and I don't think I needed reinforcement, but it reinforces that um, I must be doing something right. I must be on the right path. So I, I won't stop to question or analyze too much. I just accept it as um, that I am doing something right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it so feels like a messenger, uh, in, you know, in, in however, in whatever way people would like to explain that. It feels very much like a messenger and something very special around such a, an important piece of work too. And when when you mentioned that tragedy, I wondered if that related to the sculpture you did of a of a friend's son who sadly died, because I read that actually that in some ways made you feel more nervous than creating the Martha Luther King sculpture. Yes, yes. Um, you know, a schoolmate of mine whose son passed and... Um, when you are, you know, I I I have children, and um, you know, we never want to lose a child. We want our children to bury us. Uh, so to lose a child in the prime, you know, full of expectation, um, is probably the greatest of tragedies. And. Um, a friend asked me to do a sculpture of him. I thought it was, was um, I was really touched by the request and the responsibility of trying to represent, um, you know, all of this feeling. And having gone through the experience a couple of years earlier with uh, my son's friends. Um, so for me, that responsibility you know, Martin Luther King is a big public figure, and um, but as I said earlier, is that hero in the ordinary person, the heroic in that father to to stay strong, to live for the other children, to keep going. Um, you know, is is magnificent. So I found that responsibility to be very to weigh very heavily on me. And I was very, very honored to um, to be asked to do it and get that privilege. And in order to do it too, he had to pour his whole, you know, talk to me about his son and, and so on. And all of pouring that into, into me became very emotional. But this is this is what my work is all about for me. It's about allowing me to connect with people, to connect with experiences, to connect with communities. Um, you know, this is this is what it's it's about. Not so much the object, but for me, that 
opportunity or privilege to connect with people. Uh, this is why I enjoy what I do so much. Yeah, and, and when you're working um, on such a deeply emotional level, um, again, I think that's that very courageous in terms of, of what you're, you're taking on, your sense of responsibility. And this is also reflected, isn't it, in the... Um, sculptures are the the busts uh, and sculptures um you've created a uh, three really important women uh nanny jamaica's first national hero miss lou the honorable louise bennett cloverley and septima poinsett clark uh mother of the civil rights movement uh these are all really strong powerful important women and how how you approach those works to tell those stories and honour those lives and reflect the qualities of who they are. Where do you dig? How how deep can you dig to to get that kind of emotional sense you want to reflect in those subjects? I dig into my own life experiences. I had a tremendous mother. She was so supportive. She in herself was very brave, um, courageous woman. You know, I remember she deciding to move from being a secretary to being uh, a manager to the managerial level, and without the educate the the schooling, she didn't. Um, she had to go back and do courses and so on. But she was, I remember her worried about making the transition. And, um, you know, she decided to just do it. And um, we didn't see why our brilliant mother couldn't do it. So, you know, and then I've been married to a, a um, fantastic woman for uh, how many years? 40 odd years. Um, I have a daughter who is the most stubborn and persistent person I can find. So, you know, in terms of I've had some magnificent women in my life and it, it has fostered a, an appreciation that, um, you know, women are part there you know equal there is no there is no underestimation of gender or anything like that so um that is where it starts that appreciation for the strength the power the abilities of of women and um it's just a natural progression that we need to reconfigure how we look on life, look on nature, look on human beings, look on societies. Um, things need to change. Um, the white male-dominated world um, is, is history. We, you know, we have to recognize that, or that um, it goes way beyond that. We have to take care of the environment. We have to take care of so many things we have neglected and taken for granted. We have taken women for granted. We have taken race for granted. 
we have taken culture for granted. And um, we need to re-examine everything because we have grown so fast over such a short period of time. The world has grown so far and fast over such a short period of time. I think we are, we have lost equilibrium and we realize that in order to move forward, we need to find a way on a global level to develop some, you know, some equilibrium um, because we will come out of balance very quickly and get into, you know, tragedy. So we, we have a big struggle ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, sadly, sadly, uh, uh, so much conflict. To... I wouldn't say sadly. Mm. Um, I would say excitingly. Mm. Um, you know, I still think that the world is probably at a better place than it has ever been. More people are fed, more people are housed, more, there is more health care. But we have so, so far to go. And we need to recognize that, um, you know, we are not there. The journey is still a very far way to go. But we have made tremendous progress. And um, the fact that we are having this conversation, I think, reflects that uh, steps are being made to, to continue to move forward. And we have made progress, great progress. So I, I am very optimistic. I am not sad. Yes, we have uh, there. There are casualties along the way, and there will always be. But um, I, I have high expectations for my grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. So bearing in mind how much incredible iconic work you've already created and reflecting on everything you were just saying if you were to make an iconic work something that was a global statement on humanity on the future what, what do you think that might look like I, I, I don't know I don't know if the artists really control that um, narrative you know what makes the Statue of Liberty the Statue of Liberty? What makes the Eiffel Tower so iconic? What makes Christ the Redeemer so iconic? Um, so I will just continue to do and make, and hopefully I reach that physical scale of the Statue of Liberty, the Christ the Redeemer, so on. And it not is not only good and not only big, but it 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 touches people in such a big way. So um I I just sculpt. Um I one of the things is that I I have learned or practiced is that I don't necessarily go after things because sometimes by doing that you miss what is coming to you so I allow I think I find it better to allow things to come to me so who knows what will come um, I would not I might be limiting it by even stating it yeah yeah that's interesting yeah 
let it unfold. So let it unfold. Yeah. So, so Basil, um, since the, the the hour has flown by, I wondered if I could end on the series question: um, "Cannot save us." And and I'll quote you actually in relation to that question: "Expose your children to art; a mind once opened can never be closed." Yes, um, that has been my experience. Uh, that has been the experience of my children, my grandchildren. Um, I, and in terms of investing in art, I think this is the best investment for your children. You know, I've seen, I was told that I would stand in front of my father's, when I was a toddler, I would stand in front of my father's paintings and just look, look, look. And I've seen my grandchildren come and stand. Yes, one of my granddaughters come and stand in front of a drawing. She's in diapers and you know, a little toddler, and she just stands there looking at it for about thirty seconds, maybe a little more, and then goes about her business. And um, this needs to be replicated in the home, in the communities um, where we question, we, we open minds, we, we expose our people, our children to, you know, um, our values represented in, in, in a positive way. So um, art is definitely one of the things that can help save us. Um, but art, well, one of the things is uh, asking the right questions. And, um, you know, like with everything else, sometimes the right questions are asked, sometimes not the right questions are asked. So it goes beyond just art, but art is is one of the conduits that can definitely um, bring people together. Uh, a culture can divide as well as unite. And... Um, I think as we intermingle and intermarry, we will, um, life seeks a higher ground. So, you know, the, the highest qualities of, of that in, intermingling, I think, will, will dominate. And um, so I think that is the hope for the world, where East, West, North, and South can meet and harness the best that we all have to offer. And also be aware that we do have negative things that we put on the plate and we need to distill it down to the to the um, you know qualities or the better aspects of of culture yeah absolutely and 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 certainly from what you've said today and and other articles I've read um it's really important, isn't it, if we want to make change, we need to take responsibility as game changers and, and to stay positive. Basil, now we've shot past the hour, I wondered if there was anything you wanted to reflect on or, or add um, be, before, I, before I let you go, um, because I, I know we've crept over the hour. It, it has flown by like a minute. It has. <laughs> it has. Uh, and you have... Ask questions about things that I didn't even know 
were out there about me. Um, so um, I think you were very um, deep in your questions and um, nothing, you know. Uh, I would say, is there anything more that you want to ask me? Uh, well, uh, thank you. I mean, uh, if if it's not um, continuing to steal too much of your time, um, it would be nice just to, to add something else if, if you're sure you're happy in terms of time. And that was, of mm-hmm. course, to reflect on your work, um, the, the Usain Bolt uh, statue, because, um, again, it's another really uh, iconic piece. Uh, he's legendary, of course, as an Olympian um, in his own right. And I understand that you were able to meet him in order to try and assess, if you like, the, the emotional nature of, of the man and, and his personality. And also because you understand pressure and, of course, his pressures as a competitor are immense, I just wondered what that exchange was like if you felt you could get into his personality quickly through your own insights to make that statue. Well, a great part of it is that not everything is, can be expressed in words. Um, and so it's, it's very much a feeling um, that you can't, really explain or express but um when when you get it you get it uh you know so meeting him and so on just gave me a feeling that um an experience of the man uh the the, the first thing is that wow he's huge um, you know, so he looks physically dominating when you are beside him. But, um, you know, there is a quiet determination and focus that he exudes. Um, that, as I say, is, is difficult to express in words, and that's why I do sculpture. Uh, I express it in, in clay. And you know, you have to deal with it in clay. But um, it was a great honor. One thing that I did learn from his coach, uh, something that I have kept with me, um, I asked the coach, you know, what was his, this is Glenn Mills. Um, He has coached many great athletes, including Usain Bolt. What was if there's any secret to his success. And he did say that his approach is to tell people what to do versus what not to do. So if we're not training on field A, he doesn't say I'm not, we're not training on field A. We are training on field B. And so in relating to people, it's, it's, emphasis on what we need to do versus what we need not to do which i thought was very powerful yeah and um i have taken it with me yeah that that is really interesting and and you've said um 
yourself uh, in the past, the gift of sculpture is the understanding of life that it passes down to you. And I imagine you learn something um, about life from from everything you do, even if it is in unexpected ways. Yes, definitely. And also, in in contrast to uh, Usain Bolt, um, I, I know uh, you have a soft spot for the uh, Miss Lou sculpture, and I, I wondered if you'd like to contextualise that, the difference it has for you um, in terms of meaning, um, in that it has its own power, but in a different way. Yes, uh, Miss Lou is very close to my heart. Um, Bolt did it in 9.58 seconds. Miss Lou did it over decades of, of yeah, little by little. Um, and she represented culture and the um, development of the Jamaican spirits and recognition of our indigenous cultures and and so on, a language, um, especially where our patwa, which is quite famous. And she she lived and worked and in a community in, in the hills, a small rural town. And the sculpture was placed not at the National Stadium in the lights, but in the middle of this small rural and impoverished to some extent town. And the way it lifted the spirit of the town was magnificent. Um, you know, the school teachers would come out and take a picture in front of the sculpture on their birthday when they're having a drink at the bar. You know, um, the poor, it has just transformed the, the village. And um, I, I really like how that has happened. And it is showing that, um, you know, art is not just for the bright, shiny places, but it is for the small rural, it's for everybody. And um, these people were able to interact, would not connect with it and, uh, you know, what it meant to them. So for me, that was very special. Yeah, it, it really is beautiful that that impact um, art can make in in any community on on any local level. So I know I've stolen you um, longer, Basil, for which I'm I'm very appreciative. I wondered if now um, to close because of your time, if you'd like to leave us with any shared wisdom from yourself or perhaps something your your father passed down to you that listeners can perhaps take for themselves in order to move forward and with hope? The one thing I'd say is that um, we need to, at all times, keep the big picture in mind. Um, the big picture is where it all happens. And um, we should never lose sight of that big picture. So whether it is things are positive or negative or in between. Uh, if we keep relating it to the big picture, I think 
in the long run, we will we will make the right decisions. Yeah. Um, Basil, thank you so much for being generous with your time and also the generosity of your, your spirit as you move through this world. Um, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time um, and the example that you set through, through your work and, and through how you talk about your work. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Paula, for inviting me to this conversation. And it was a pleasure talking with you. And uh, I look forward to another time. Thank you.